But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Ethiopia and Saba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. This is the word of the Lord. My professors of preaching would always encourage us to birth our sermons out of Scripture and would say, as we got into the sermon, wait, wait, you didn't give the Sitzemleben. Sitzemleben, a German expression pretty easily translated into English, simply setting in life. What is the setting in life of this passage? This 43rd chapter of the book of Isaiah was written in Babylon. Scholars are convinced that the first 39 chapters were written by a prophet of the 8th century when the northern tribes had been devastated by the Assyrians, that the middle chapters are written by a writer whose name we do not know, a good 135 years or more after the first writer had done his work, We know that when the dreaded Babylonians conquered the Assyrians, spread their empire all the way from what is modern-day Iraq across modern-day Syria and modern-day Lebanon, they swept southward against Jews in Judah, the Israelites. We know that they caught all of the king's sons, brought them in before the king, and killed them all so that he could see There will be no heirs to the throne of David. Then they gouged out his eyes and force-marched him and all the best and brightest away to Babylon. It is from that place with these exiles that this author writes. I've underlined four things that I think are vitally important. The first of them, actually from the chapter before. For a long time I have held my peace. But this is a people robbed and plundered, trapped in holes, hidden in prisons, a prey with no one to rescue them. I tell you every fall that your children and grandchildren will remember longer things that are set to music. When I was in the eighth grade, a fellow named Arthur Hamilton, a dozen years older than I was at the time, had had a bad experience falling in love with a young woman who decided she loved more somebody else. He had finally started getting his life back together when she started calling him. I'm so sorry. I've decided you're the right one. Oh, please, I want to be your special girl. He said no. No, he'd had enough of that, but he wrote a song about it. And he had a friend who had other friends who tried to get 38 of the most popular singers at that time to sing his song, 38 Rejections. Nobody wanted any part of it. And Arthur remembered that he had an old girlfriend in high school who had become a singer. 
Her name was Julie London. And he called Julie London and said, Would you listen to my song? And she said, Sure. And she decided to record it, and it went straight to the top of the charts. Cry? He asks. Cry? Cry me a river. Because I've cried a river over you. Remember? Susan Boyle re-recorded it just a couple of years ago if you want to hear an updated version. Cry me a river. I've cried a river over you. And that could have been God's attitude. Now that these exiles cry out to him, he could have said, For hundreds of years I've been crying over you. Go, cry yourself a river. But he didn't. In fact, he said what he had told Moses hundreds of years before at the burning bush. I've heard the cries of my people in Israel, in, in Egypt, and I'm ready to do something about their plight. I'm sending you back to Pharaoh. And now again, for these exiles in a far different place, God said, I hear the cries of my people. They've been robbed and plundered. They're in traps and dungeons and prisons with no one to care for them. Well, I care for them. Look at number two. First verse of what I read to you earlier. Now says the I am who I am, who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel. These two verbs are very important. Created and formed. They come right out of the second chapter of Genesis. Remember when Rabbi Zimmerman was with us last winter, and he reminded you and me that in biblical times, about 97% of the people for whom these writings were so important could not read them, could not write. They had to listen. And if one cannot write little notes to oneself, one must remember very well. So when they would hear significant words, they would remember them. Well, these words come right out of Genesis 2. The older of the two creation stories, a very primitively told story, one we believe was told around campfires for hundreds of years before finally David built a new capital city and Solomon built a temple and you had an educated priesthood who gathered these oral traditions and put them down in writing. You remember what Genesis 2 says? One day when the dew had settled in the dust, God went out onto the plain, scooped up the moist earth, flopped it down on the wheel. That's not what it says in your English translation because, as Gail reminds me every time I tell this, you can't create something with arms and legs on a potter's wheel. Because as the wheel goes round and round and you mold and shape it, it becomes symmetrical. But to that primitive mind, it worked fine. Like a potter to wheel, God scooped up this moist earth, flopped it down on the wheel, and began to treadle. And the little wheel went round and round, and God molded and fashioned it till he had it just the way he wanted it. And then God went with his own ruach, and the little man jumped down off the wheel. And God said, I've done something really special here. God formed and shaped. And this writer... 700 years after Moses' time is saying, God formed and shaped you, O Jacob, O Israel, formed and shaped you. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading my Wall Street Journal early one morning, and here was a headline. 
no soul in the DNA. So I read. And this author, Matt Ridley, was saying, a lot of people hoped that if we kept searching in our DNA and we could finally produce the human genome, we would find all kinds of genes that differentiated us from chimpanzees and great upland gorillas and the other mammal world. Guess what, he said? It didn't happen. When they got the whole human DNA completely analyzed, as far as we've gone so far, we have more than 22,000 genes. So does the laboratory mouse. And they have found that out of more than 22,000, only 18 differ from the laboratory mouse. We are very much like them. We are very much like chimpanzees and great upland gorillas. But Mr. Ridley said, now don't go off troubled today. Let me help you a little. He said, when Shakespeare was writing his plays, we know that there were more than 18,000 words in the English language. But if you read Shakespeare's plays and program the words into computer, you will discover that in King Lear and Othello... The ten words he uses most in one, he uses in the other. The ten words he used most in Othello, he used in King Lear. Those two plays are not the same. And so what he said was, you see, it's not really the words. It's the way they're arranged. And with the genes, it's not really so much what they are as how they're arranged. So that one arrangement makes a laboratory mouse and another arrangement makes a human being. And this human being, our faith holds, God formed and shaped. It may have taken millions of years to get it just the way God wanted it to be when humans became something different from all the rest of creation. Israel, Jacob, I formed you. I shaped you. You were mine, he said. Number three, do not fear, I will redeem you. The word redeem can have two very specific meanings in Scripture. The root word. One is from the marketplace, particularly the slave market. When a slave is being auctioned off, bids are taken, the highest bidder is determined, that person comes forward, and if he releases the manacles and the shackles and says, you are free. That's the word redeem. But it can have another meaning. We find this one dramatically in the little book of Ruth. It had to do with a family member who has lost his or her land. When Dr. Brendan Scott presented our Barton Clinton Gordy Addresses a few years ago, he reminded us that any person in the Middle East in biblical times who had lost his or her land was destitute. If you were not a landowner, you were destitute. If you had land, you might be poor, but you could scratch it and plant seeds and harvest and eat. If you had lost your land, then you were absolutely dependent upon someone else to hire you. And they didn't hire you for 30 years or 40 years. They didn't hire you for a month. They hired you for a day. 
So if you worked, you got one denarius at the end of the day, and you could feed your family. If there was no work, you got no denarius, and your family did not eat. Naomi, her husband and two sons, left Bethlehem to go across the Jordan to the land of the Moabites because they'd had more rain. And while they worked in the land of Moab, Naomi's husband died, and then her two sons died. They had both married Moabite women. And so she said to these two young Moabite women, Go back to your people. I have nothing to offer you. I'm going home to mine. And one said, Okay, she thought she would, Orpah. And the other named Ruth said, Where you go, I'm going. What you do, I'm doing. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. And Naomi said, Well, you and I have a problem. We don't have any land. When they got back to Bethlehem, Naomi reestablished contact, and one of the cousins was named Boaz, and he fell for this beautiful young daughter-in-law of Naomi's named Ruth, and he said, I'm going to set things right. I'm not your next of kin. There's another who ought to do this properly, but if he doesn't step up and get your land for you, I will do it myself. And that's what he did. And that too is translated redeem. In the Great Depression in this country, you and I had relatives who planted. It didn't rain. They made no crop. They had to borrow from the bank. The next year it didn't rain. They had no harvest. The next year they borrowed from the bank. It didn't rain. And then one day the bank came and took the land. Then they were really destitute. They became sharecroppers on the land of somebody else who had land, you see. Israel, I will redeem you. I read a story almost a month ago now. A couple in Washington named Bennett and Vivian Levin had been watching their television news night after night and had seen that their local station had decided to remind people in the Washington area about how many young servicemen and women are being injured, first in Iraq, now in Afghanistan. And so these young people would not be forgotten. They were interviewing one after the other, different nights of the week. So Bennett and Vivian said, what could we do to help these young people who are in our Washington, D.C. hospitals know we appreciate them? You know, there's a big Army hospital called Walter Reed, and there's a big Naval and Marine hospital called Bethesda. So he contacted the two commanding officers of those hospitals, told him, told them his plan, and they went along. You see, Bennett and Vivian owned three railroad cars. Think luxurious wood, beautiful seats, china, crystal. One of these cars took John Kennedy to the Army-Navy football game in 1961. One of those three cars brought Bobby Kennedy's body back to Washington for burial. Think that kind of railway car. They can hire Amtrak to hook onto it and take them wherever they want to go across the country. Well, how about if they took these, these patients from these two hospitals, young Navy men, Marines and, and, and soldiers, Army men, to the game. It was going to be in Philadelphia this year. Well, these people who have money like that seem to know 
other people who have money like that, and they called across the country and found 15 more railroad cars of the same type. Amtrak agreed to pick them up, bring all these cars to Washington. And then they got a benefactor who got 100 seats on the 50-yard line for the Army-Navy game. And they started contacting these patients. Who would like to go to the Army-Navy game? Some were in wheelchairs, some were on crutches. One was blind, said they were ready. So they picked them all up, got them down to the train station. Here were these 18 magnificent railway cars. They got them all distributed on those 18 cars. Immediately, they had master chefs who were preparing the best of food for them. They arrived in Philadelphia. They had proper transport to the game. They were seated on the 50-yard line. They were given snacks and treats during the game. They were taken back to this train, these 18 wonderful cars. The chefs had been working all afternoon. They had a terrific meal for them as they got back to Washington, D.C. When they were being taken off the train, all 18 of the Marines got together and sang the Marine hymn to these two. And the fellow who was blind said... I can't see you, but I know you're beautiful. Could I hug you? And he hugged the two leavens. Israel's God cares about those whom others have forgotten, cares deeply about those who are marginalized, who are the powerless, maybe voiceless, and celebrates them as his children, the children of Almighty God, whom he formed and shaped. Okay, last. Dr. Walter Brueggemann will be coming as our Barton Clinton Gordy presenter in about 13 months. And in his commentary on this passage, he says, I believe this may be the clearest passage in the Hebrew Scriptures. And when a professor says that, you take that down. It'll be on the exam, you can be sure. This passage may be the best in 39 scrolls of Hebrew Scripture in spelling out just exactly how God feels about Israel. I honor you, God said. You are precious in my sight. I love you. The word used for God's very nature, more than any other in the Hebrew Scriptures, chesed, I have chesed for you. Shawnell Eliason wrote about last Christmas, 2009. She said that her family had a tradition since their first little boy was born. And then when the second and the third came along, they decided that every one of their little boys would have his own box of decorations and that every year they would be taken to a store and each could pick out one more decoration to add to his box. And the next year when Advent came along, they would all go up into the attic and each boy would take his box and they'd all go down together and decorate the tree. And as each one added his decorations, the whole tree would take shape. She said, so all these decorations are important to us, of course, and we all remember when each one was added to the boxes. But she said, there's one little decoration I always sort of look for myself. Because my oldest, Logan, when he was four, his daddy took him to the store and helped him carefully pick out a Christmas ball that was substantial enough that wasn't dangerous in the hands of a four-year-old. It was solid white. 
And then the daddy wrote out for him in very clear printing for mom. Logan, 1996. And she said the four-year-old reproduced that on this white ball the best he could. And I've loved it ever since. It goes in his box. He takes it out every year. I see it. And it makes me get all teary. But last year, more than ever, because Logan was 17, senior in high school, and I knew in five months he's going off to college. And I have friends whose children are a little older who say, when they go away, they don't ever come back the same. When they go away, they don't come back the same. You've tried to help them be young men and women. Well, that's what they're going to become, young men and women. And they begin this painful for you separation. But that's what you've raised them to do, of course. Even so, she said it was hard. The three boys picking up, the, putting the decorations. Finally, she said, I just went in the kitchen where nobody could see me. Tap on the shoulder. It was Logan. He must have sensed. He told me later he looked all over town for a white ball as nearly like that one 13 years before as possible. And he had written now like a 17-year-old for mom. Logan. 2009. And I sensed that this son of mine was saying, Mom, in some ways our relationship changes year after year. But your love for me and my love for you will never change. Never. Guess what? Israel's God says that to you and me.